Welcome to Humanitu. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this podcast series about humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Amanda E.K., writer and editor, publisher and filmmaker, memoirist about purity culture, and ex-evangelist. But before we get into an hour of Amanda sharing so honestly her humanness and creativity, I want for you to consider this question. How do you live humanness and creativity in your life? Also, something that I almost always leave until the very end of the episode is how you can help me and humanity continue to cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. Three ways. One, rating this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and on other players helps the algorithms of our digital lives know what's worth promoting. Two, spread the word about this podcast on your social media pages and by old-fashioned just telling your family and friends about it. And three, you can give a buck to sustain Humanitu by going to the support page on the website, humanitu.com. Now, back to the amazing conversation at hand with Amanda E.K. Amanda grew up as an only child in a fundamentalist evangelical family. She turned to the pages of her diaries starting at age seven, in which she documented her thoughts and questions that she feared were too sinful to say out loud. As a preteen, she wrote a lot in her diaries about her boy-crazy disposition, even when attending purity retreats, weekends designed to repress and redirect the natural urges of such affectionate ideas. In fact, as a side note, you can go to her YouTube channel, linked in the show notes on the Humanity website, where she's published short videos of her reading some of those youthful diary entries. She reads, for example, the outline that she wrote at 15 years old to set her own physical limitations when hanging out with a boy. In this conversation, we talk about Amanda's first purity retreat experience at 12 years old, and she tells of the rapture anxiety that she felt at being away from home and the recurring nightmares rooted in that anxiety that she still has. We talk about how it was at a religious Christian college surrounded by fellow 18-year-olds who were on fire for Jesus that she started seeing cracks in the evangelical truths that she'd been given. We also talk a lot about Amanda's personal journey, peeling back the layers of religious trauma syndrome and uncovering her own sense of truth and identity that are very much not in line with the fundamentals of evangelicalism. Now, I've said all this and I haven't even talked about Amanda's path out of small town Iowa to Denver, Colorado, or how she came to be the owner and editor-in-chief of a highly regarded literary and art publication there, Suspect Press, or a number of other things, but we will now. Here it is, in my conversation with Amanda E.K. Amanda, welcome to Humanitu. Thank you. So I think congratulations are in order. I know that you recently uh, received announcement that you have a TV pilot that you co-wrote and it has moved on to the second round for the Austin Film Festival. And that sounds like a big deal to me. So congratulations. And and what's going on with that? Thanks so much. Yeah, that feels really, really good. Um, I'm a really new screenwriter, just started last year, and this was my first screenwriting project. Um, with my friend Jesse Livingston, who had some experience uh, with screenwriting before he's made a short film and wanted to collaborate. And uh, <clears throat> we both had a similar love for the show Twin Peaks by David Lynch and Lynch's work in general. And so we wanted to make something kind of in the spirit of that and our other crossover interests. And so we we worked on that for a solid 10 months and have been pitching it to a lot of contests. And this was the first positive feedback we've gotten um, so far. So that's really exciting. Um, and in the way of that, we're, we're just trying to garner attention for ourselves as uh, a creative team. And so we started a production company and have just made uh, a short film, uh, a black and white avant-garde kind of piece making use of a lot of public art around Denver. And we're going to be releasing that in a couple of weeks with a couple public viewings. And other than that, we're going to keep pitching our script, um, hopefully hearing back from some other contests that we submitted to, and then looking for a, a manager for the TV stuff. But in the meantime, making more short films to get attention for our work. 
I want to ask you about, about voice, all right? Because in this writing and in these creative forms that we use, and I know that you've been writing for many, many years um, professionally, but then also dating way back to, we're talking about writing as a means of expression when you were a child and all the way through, I think. But I have seen where you wrote that you were a quiet girl, easy to overlook. And so this process, I think, of coming to your voice and learning what what that is and what that can be and how to come into your own in that way, right? So I'm curious, where are you in this process of voice and what is it you're, you're uncovering there? Well, first, I love the conversation about voice in terms of writing and craft. And I think it's a conversation that some writers hate or or they're they're like we'll say what is voice what does it matter <laughs> but I love I love that question I love talking about voice and I talk about it in my writing class um, and I think voice is tied in a lot with confidence and self-confidence and uh, definitely yeah a lot of it for me was just privacy um, private expression and feeling like when I wrote that was the only place I could be myself in my diaries starting from the age of seven. I've been keeping a diary and that was where I could ask anything, could doubt anything. I grew up in a fairly fundamentalist evangelical upbringing. And so I felt really shy about asking things out loud because I thought it would be something that would bring judgment upon me or I would be shamed for. So writing was where I could have my self-expression and really, I think growing into my voice probably started with writing fiction. And that started with writing male third person characters instead of like when I actually started writing to stuff that I wanted to share. It was not my voice. I mean, it was not me. It was not first person. I had to start gaining courage and confidence through fictional characters. And I joined a writing group called the Knife Brothers. We've been together for seven years. We meet every month and we met at Lighthouse Writers Workshop here in Denver and they were the, really the first group of people I ever started sharing my work with. So getting immediate feedback and having people who I've then built friendships with, hearing them call me out and say, where are you in this? What does this mean to you? You know, they would even say, like, I feel like you're hiding behind this character. What do you actually feel? Um, having a community of other writers read your work, I think, helps your voice and confidence a lot and, and helps you look at yourself. And that group, and then also my colleagues and friends with Suspect Press, my business, when they started reading my work too, I, st I started just feeling like, oh, I actually have a story I can share. Like they told me like when I was just telling them about my upbringing and my life in the church and and they were amazed by it. I was like, well, that, that's not a story. That was just what I grew up with and tried to get out of. And they were just curious and asked me a lot of questions and gave me a lot of words of affirmation about this is valid and you should share this, um, that that's when I really started maybe coming into my true voice um, was when I gained confidence in believing that I had a story of my own. I didn't just have to tell fictional people's stories to express some of the traumas I went through. And uh, just the more I do it, the more confidence I gain and the more I feel like it's it's true to probably what my voice is, but voice as a craft, I think, is not not listening to anybody else <laughs> and just maybe not even studying any other work. It's just what comes out of you naturally and how you tell a story. And that's really what people, you know, like if you have your favorite filmmakers or your favorite writers and you're like, God, or your favorite photographer, um, like, how do they get that? How do they capture that? I want to capture that and share that. But then you're just trying to emulate someone else. So it's when you can let the other influence go, like take in the influence, um, but then kind of forget it and then just do it the way you want to do it. Because um, you're never going to do something as good as someone else did it the way they did it because that was their way of doing it and their voice. And then you're always just going to come across as copying or trying too hard to, to do something, but it's not you. So when you do, can just let go of all the other voices, I think that's where your voice comes in. Right. We, we become the amalgamation of all these other influences for us. Right. And, and I think that's also kind of like how people will say, we'll learn, you need to learn what the rules are so that you can then know how to effectively 
and intelligently break yes. them. Yes. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with that. But also I think some people just have a natural gift too and it just happens and it just comes out and then everyone else is just trying to recreate that themselves. And everybody has a story as well, right? And so it's interesting. Like what you just gave as an example of how you didn't realize that your life experience was a story and it's, it's your story and, and that you and your voice are within that and that it is valid. And, and I think that that's the case for an awful lot of people. They've gone through the various uh, experiences and even traumas in life, and they're not sure how that's relevant to other people. And it's a value to other people and to be able to share and connect over that. So I'm glad that you have found that and that they were there and in that process because so much is coming from that, I think. Yeah. I want to ask, I want to step back for a second. You said you started journaling or di uh, writing in diaries at seven. And I'm curious, well, two things. You mentioned privacy, being able to ask questions when you didn't necessarily feel like you could ask that of a person. And at seven, did you feel like you had that privacy, you know, that there wasn't a parent or someone who was going to dig into those, those pages and find out what you were thinking and, and asking about, but also what were you writing about at seven in a diary? <laughs> well, first off, I was an only child. So in a sense, I had a lot of privacy, except um, I grew up in a home where I had very attentive parents. And so it was a lot of coming into my room without waiting to be invited in, or I never knew if I'd really had privacy. But beyond that, I mean, I didn't really fear that my parents were going to read. I think I did. Of course I did. Just that natural human lack of trust. But especially when you're like pouring that much truth out, I think you just automatically fear they'll be exposed. But I, I was just always afraid of what God thought. Um, um, God was always watching. And so I kind of, I felt sinful, I think, sometimes writing certain things. So there was a lot I didn't write because I just thought if I wrote it, that would be sinful and disrespectful to God. So even like without parents or siblings around, there was always the ultimate <laughs> know-all, end-all, be-all um, right. who was aware. But really at the start of my diaries, I just wrote about my friends. I had a couple of close girlfriends. And when I went back, I read through every single one of my diaries before I worked on my memoir. Um, two years ago, I went and read everything. And I was kind of an asshole. I mean, I just wrote about why my friends annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at that age at seven, um, like she did this and she didn't talk to me, you know, just, but it's the place to do that. I had basically two friends that were super close and I had no siblings. So my diary was my best friend. And that's what you say when you're venting just to process friendships and social, emotional experiences. Um, and that, that morphed um, as I got a little bit older and got more involved in the church. But at the start, it was really just a lot of who I had a crush on and what I'd done with my friends. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, okay. So the church, um, you were brought up in an evangelical uh, community and setting, and you've already mentioned, referenced a number of things here about the influence that that was having, this this sense that God was always watching and this concern, even at a very young age, about what was sinful and, and were you going to run afoul of these expectations and rules on you. This has led to something significant in the work that you do and in what this memoir is, and, and specifically purity culture and a lot of things around this religious experience, your experience with religion, I should say. So I'm, I'm curious if you would take me through, I, I also grew up in a church, by the way, uh, up until I was 18 and out on my own to make that decision for myself. And I would go to summer camps, youth camps that were church camps. And you have mentioned that at 12, you went to your first purity retreat. Would you mind describing for me what that experience is, what you remember of that first experience specifically, if you have those memories. Yeah. Uh, thank you for showing that you also grew up in the church. And I think there's something very beautiful about church camps and retreats. I mean, they bring out a lot of uh, emotional intensity that's really exciting to feel. And I usually feel pretty bonded with other people knowing if they've had that experience. Um, and I, I do remember this first retreat very well um, because I journaled about it. Um, so I established <laughs> it course. in my diary memories anyway, but I also visually remember it. I remember one being extremely anxious. I was just a very, very anxious, scared child all the time, very quiet. And I, I 
understand now that I had panic attacks at that age. I just didn't know what they were at the time. So I uh, probably experienced some sort of panic attack at least once around the going because I'd never been overnight anywhere to a different town without my family before. And as a young evangelical, you often hear probably almost daily that uh, Jesus is coming anytime, any moment, you never know. And you hear about the rapture, about Christ coming back for all of the Christians to take you up into heaven and to leave everyone behind. And as a child, when you hear these messages, you constantly are in fear. You're just constantly in fear that you sinned today and maybe you went to bed without asking for forgiveness for calling your dog a dum-dum or you know whatever childish name you might uh, call somebody else that really doesn't mean anything. And But I would just have severe anxiety if and ask for forgiveness. Kind of, oh, what if God comes tonight? My dad would always say he comes like a thief in the night. You may, when you go to bed tonight, you may not wake up tomorrow. And oh wow, that's very. That's a very exciting thing for my dad, and it still is. He loves that idea. But as a child, it just bred constant fear in me. In the re- in the recent years, there's been a, a boom in ex evangelicals, former ex former evangelicals, um, coming together on the internet and finding each other and sharing these experiences. And uh, one of them coined a term, unless it was a a psychiatrist maybe, coined the term rapture anxiety. And when I learned this term, I understood a lot of myself way better and my particular version of anxiety because anytime I travel, anytime I go anywhere, sleep over anything, I had such panicked anxiety. I thought I was going to throw up all night long, which was a panic attack feeling and couldn't sleep. Um, But now I understand because I thought maybe everyone else would be raptured away. My family would be raptured away before I came back home, I would never see anyone again, or maybe I'd be raptured away and wouldn't be able to find my parents or my family um, after I, I left the space. And that's been a recurring nightmare my entire life is like stepping outside my door and not being able to find anyone else I know. Um, so I go to this retreat and panicked, <laughs> like constant anxiety um, with that feeling, that unarticulated feeling, um, but also just this grand lust. I mean, I was a very um, boy crazy child. And my best friend at the time was also very boy crazy. And so for us, it was a super exciting time to go check out boys and not only just boys, but Christian boys. Because I only knew non-Christian boys. Uh, My church was very small and was mostly old farmers. (laughs) Um, So I didn't really know any Christians my age, except this one friend. And so we go there. I'm like, oh, there's going to be so many cute boys that I'm allowed to think are cute because <laughs> because they're Christians. Um, and God, we just, oh, we spent the whole weekend um, stalking <laughs> these couple boys. <laughs> um, where, but whereas my friend was more bold, she ended up getting her crush's address so they could write letters to each other. And uh, I was too shy. I never even looked at mine. When he looked at me, I would look away and flush deep red. But that, that was a large part of that experience, which was really fun. You know, like looking back as an adolescent, of course, that's fun. And um, But also there was the first time I was at retreats where I heard messages about how God called you basically for marriage, that marriage was um, ordained by God so that two people would be stronger together in serving God than one, and that you really shouldn't date or consider dating or think about dating or think about sex or kissing or hand-holding or any of it until you knew it was God's timing for you to be ready to start preparing for marriage. And I was 12. So I felt a long way off and I got pretty bummed out because then here's this boy who I'm crushing on severely. And in my diaries, I wrote, dear God, I pray that, I think his name is Seth. Dear God, I pray that Seth is my future husband so that it's okay for me to have these thoughts about him. And I feel like you're calling me to marry this boy. I mean, just met him, never talked, 12 years old. And that's what like that was the what the message did to me was I turned that message about faith. I combined it with my feelings of having a crush on someone and made that what faith was for me. Like, oh, faith is earning a boy, earning a husband. And so that just got started really early. And that, you know, I I had openly had lots of crushes. And so 
that I just started feeling so much shame, like, oh, it was so wrong of me to think all these things or to even look at anyone or like anyone. And so then that never went away, the liking people. But from that point forward, I felt constant shame for it and just kind of became a very depressive child and teenager. I mean, also, yeah, entering the teenagers just brought on a lot of shame and depression, but I thought that's that was my calling. So it felt holy and good and right, but at the at the sake of loving myself and and accepting who I was for who I was. How did your family and and you come to this place of such um, such deep beliefs? You said that the church was small. You were from a small town. You grew up in a small town in Iowa. How did you come to this place of of such deep evangelical beliefs and faiths and this understanding? Um, so when I was a toddler, I was two, my mom got a type of bone cancer called uh, periosteal, or, mm, no, I'm not going to remember now. I have it written down, but a, a type of bone cancer. And um, she started having a lot of surgeries, had to go up to the Mayo Clinic and Minnesota several times. And um, at the time, my parents were not Christians. My mom grew up Catholic and my dad grew up without any religion. And they were both wild children, like absolute, like just rebellious, wild teenagers. But they wanted to be parents, like more than anything, they wanted to be parents. And then soon after they had me, my mom got cancer and their whole world seemed to be falling apart. She lost her job from not being able to go into work. And my dad lost his job and they had a toddler at home. And so it was around this time that my dad came out to Colorado, went to um, his brother's mega church that he'd started going to and um, did an altar call. An altar call is where after this grand emotional uh, ceremony, <laughs> this you know church service where you're brought to the depths of feeling and then the heights of hope that things could be better. Um, they call you up to the front to basically bow down and confess your sins to God and invite Jesus into your heart, which is how you get saved and ask I mean, I literally, when I was young, I invited Christ in my heart when I was probably five. And I thought there was like a little room in there when Jesus was hanging out. And um, my dad did the altar call and brought his new faith back home to my mom. Because he's like, oh, this is, you know, God is in control. That's the message. God is in control. Like nothing in their lives was under their control at that time. So my dad latched, latched onto this God is in control. And, and my mom at first scoffed at it and She's like, oh, that just sounds like the Catholicism I didn't like growing up. That was restrictive on me. But um, they started attending this new evangelical church where they still go to today. At the time, and everyone welcomed them. They made meals for them. They helped take care of me. And so they just saw this like renewal and this kindness and this support in, in evangelicalism and put all their faith and trust in God because they were just at the depths of everything, didn't know what to do to get by in life. And so they got just really big into it. They were early 30s at the time, about the same age I am now, which is weird for me to think. And then so they started taking me to the Evry Church around the age of three. And then I just started getting these messages right away from the preschool age. And because that's what they, they connected with, so wholeheartedly at like this pit of of their lives and all these hardships that it just became their everything. And so that's how it got started for me. I just, I was immersed in it from the beginning and it was my world. I didn't know anything else. I was told this is the truth. This is right. Everyone else is lost. You are special. You are chosen because you know the truth. How lucky are you? And everyone else is going to tell you that you're being brainwashed, but those are agents of the devil. And so you get all this messaging so early on that you don't even think to question it. You just think you're lucky. I'm a very uh, romantic person by nature. Um, I romanticize every experience. Everything has meaning. And so I was a perfect candidate for diving really deep into evangelicalism and just wanting to earn God's best. I mean, that was part of the huge message was or in the best marriage, or in the best sex life, if you wait for uh, sex in marriage, and or in the best relationships by honoring God, or in the best like 
call to life, like the most exciting life you could have if you serve God. And I wanted all the best things. So I wanted to do everything right. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When did you start to question that? I I think I started questioning it when I went to Christian college. I met a lot of Christians who weren't evangelical Christians. And I had been told that the E-Free Church was the true church. Like I, I judged Baptists and Lutherans and Catholics and Presbyterians. But then I go to Christian college and there's all these people there that love Jesus. I mean, all these 18 year olds who are just, I mean, the that's a very common phrase is on fire for Jesus. I wanted only to be around people who are on fire for Jesus. And I met them and they just, they were in love with God. They served God. They were in bands, playing music for God, holding Bible studies and meeting in groups to check on each other's souls and their walk with Christ. And they were from all sorts of denominations. And just that little thing alone was what got me to really start questioning was, wait a second, if I was told that the E-Free Church is a true church, how come all these other churches can have Christians who seem just as holy and on the right path? And then it was my, my Bible classes. Um, I had an instructor talk about all the books of the Bible that were kept out of the canon. And I'd been told my whole life that it was the perfect breathed word of God. Not everything in the Bible was exactly what God wanted in it. And then I start learning that Constantine kept things out because he was threatened by the ideas in them and, and other people. And I was just like, wait a second. So these little details that I learned from more educated Christians is what started that. And just, just yeah, just starting to ask more questions and learn more about like the original Hebrew and the context of certain verses that I've been told meant one thing my whole life. And they didn't or even like just having uh, the story pointed out to me how uh, Lot tries to give up his daughters to be raped to these people knocking at the door instead of his guests because I was rude to rape a guest, but here have my daughters. And then just like mm. question like, what the fuck? <laughs> like what? And and I just got I got more into radical Christianity and there's Christians um, that lead these movements like Rob Bell and Shane Claiborne. And I was like, no, I want to go to the heart of Jesus. I want to like help the homeless and and wander and and just love people and not care about materialism. Like I started noticing that church tithings were going towards church beautification rather than helping people. And and that really bothered me. So it was more of this consumerism that I started noticing Christianity too, that I wasn't okay with. It's this matter of noticing a frayed edge and starting to pull at the thread and then following it. Yeah. It sounds like. Yeah. You know, I think that there's a lot of authenticity and rawness and so much vulnerability in that not only the things that you're sharing, but of course that this is rooted in a lot of the things that you write about. Uh, it's rooted in a memoir that you referred to a little bit ago that we're going to get to in a bit. I want to talk about that some, but going back to the purity culture part of this for, for a moment, that is part of your sharing. You've mentioned shame. You've mentioned the word trauma so in your writing now, we're talking about you started off with diaries and writing as a means of expressing and processing, even at a young age. And then you study English in college. You become a professional writer. You mentioned Suspect Press, which you were a co-owner and editor-in-chief of. I mean, your, your life is very much about um, writing. That's, that's a significant piece of it. And I'm curious about if you have boil down some of this to understand what is important to you about what you're sharing about being an ex-evangelical, about having gone through the purity culture experience, processing what you're referring to as that shame and anxiety and even religious trauma syndrome, which that's a phrase I learned mm. from an Instagram post from you because I didn't mm. realize that that was a thing, but is officially a thing being researched now. Yeah. I know that's a lot that I just said, but it's what are you working through right now in these things that you share through your writing about purity culture and being an ex-evangelical? Um, I'll start with my memoir. I would say that 
writing writing story like I, I've been to therapy for many years and been processing this religious trauma syndrome which I learned in therapy and I I felt pretty good after a few years about understanding what I'd gone through and I mean it was a it was very hard but I felt like oh I know this now I can move on and then I started working on my book and all of these flashbacks came back and all of these voices in my head telling me I'm a slut and I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy and I'm too much and I don't deserve things. And that, that was really hard. Like I had to take several breaks from working on the book. I mean, it's not done. I still have to do edits when I get a book deal, but I had to stop and schedule another therapy appointment. I had a journal. I journaled a lot about writing the memoir about my journals. <laughs> um, to realize that these messages and these voices weren't real. They're not real. And I could look at them from the outside. I think that's that's the key to healing is awareness. When you don't just hear voices and believe them, you hear voices and you say, hey, wait a second, where are these coming from? And I realized they were all the things I thought when I was a teenager or a young person as a Christian. And uh, then facing that and then continuing to write the story and finishing the book felt like a massive therapy session. Like I would encourage anyone who's gone through trauma to write a book, even if it's just for yourself. I healed more rapidly than I could have any other way than by writing out the story. Cause as you're writing, you remember things you'd forgotten and remember feelings you'd forgotten. And it's good to, to let them come up again and then release them. So a lot like my book is focused on purity culture. So that's a lot of the messages of shaming about desires and body. And so I thought my body was only intended for a husband and for God's usage. And I, I mean, it's still paying ups. It's hard, but I was very intentional through writing the book to actively work on shedding these hangups. Like I, I essentially came out as queer while writing the book, which was an unexpected pairing because the book is all about my lust and attractions for boys. I mean, I was so boy crazy as a kid that I didn't even have to notice that I also had feelings for women because it was so easy to ignore. And plus it just was wrong and not an option. So that just never came up for me as a, as a teenager, as a young person. So there's a wonderful synopsis of your memoir on your website. And I, I will include a link to that for listeners to be in the show notes for listeners to be able to go to that and read for themselves, because I feel like we could spend a whole conversation just talking about several selected lines just from that, let alone what all I'm sure will be in the memoir. You are shopping it around. I look forward to, you know, it'll get picked up. I look forward to reading it. Thank you. But in that you described yourself, in that synopsis, you've described yourself as a queer, polyamorous, non-binary woman. You identify as, as bi and pansexual. These are all terms that coming from an evangelical place, right, that, that is the unexpected. These are the things that I imagine might have only layered on that shame and sense of sin that you must have been feeling as a child, even if those weren't words that you would have put to it, I'm guessing that there was something still in you that this might've somehow factored in. Did you have any sense of that as a kid at all that you now in hindsight might identify? Mm. Only in hindsight, as a kid, I had no clue that I was attracted to women. I mean, looking back, I'm like, oh, I was drawn to a lot of girls, women, celebrities, um, and felt really intimidated and shy around them, but I had no clue that that was attraction. I, I didn't know that because it just wasn't a, it wasn't an option. Like it wasn't even something to think about because being gay, which I barely even had a reference for, I just knew it was wrong and it was sinful, and that it wasn't God's right. plan. So it just wasn't even an option. Um, but the the polyamorous thing actually. Uh, came up a lot in my diaries from a very young age. I constantly wrote about having feelings for multiple people at the same time equally and wanting, I wrote all the time, but like I would, there would be certain boys who would take an interest in me 
And I would get really frustrated with them wanting all of my time and attention because I wanted to share it with lots of people and my other attractions too. I liked the attention, but when they gave me too much, I felt pressured or wearied and I I just wanted to go back to the friendship. Um, and I, I've always had a lot of friendships, like really close friendships with men in particular my whole life. And so that was a, kind of a lovely thing to understand going back and reading all my diaries was that I've I think polyamory is something kind of like a sexual identity that you can be your entire life. I don't think everyone comes into it in that way, but it was it was really heartwarming to read my young self being <laughs> so frustrated by the confines of one relationship because also the purity culture is especially for women, you are taught to save yourself for the one, pray for the one. I used to write letters to my future husband from the age of 14. I still have all of them. I've sampled some in the memoir and I've read some on stage about Mortified Live. And I I would pray daily for my future husband that he was saving himself for me and living purely so that we could meet soon because I knew God wouldn't let us meet unless we were both right with God. And so I wanted him to be right. I put a lot of stress into worrying if my future invisible husband was right with God so that I was in the same place as him and we could meet. That's so much pressure to expect everything from one person in one relationship. And I felt a lot of shame around thinking I could only love one person in a certain way. Like I feel there, I mean, there are a variety of ways to love people. And I thought all of those varieties of ways to love people had to go into your spouse and one person. And I felt so much guilt caring about male friends even, um, or wanting to spend a lot of time with female friends if that meant not spending time with my husband once I was married. I, I want to add another level to this, which is recognizing that at 22, you did marry a man who you still are married to, correct? Yep. Yeah. So, oh, and, and that he is atheist. Yeah. <laughs> Lifelong so, atheist. Again, a, a, another another level here, layer in in this story of again you being brought up with evangelical teachings and all of the things that we've just mentioned. Do you have that open relationship with your parents and them understanding all of these things? And and where does that stand now? Do you feel like that is is something that you have or, or has this been a really tough mm -hmm. thing to, to walk your own path, which happens to lead away from where they went with theirs? That's, um, it's very close to home. <laughs> I have, uh, a really hard time being open with my family. Um, and I just saw them recently and it brought up a lot of relived traumas for me because I felt I was back in that child space of shame and I'm wrong and I'm bad because I am seeing two other people besides my husband now and my parents. They read in an article a year and a half ago that I was bisexual and atheist and they didn't know. And I had been like writing them letters that I hadn't sent them and figuring out how to process it, talking to my therapist about how to come out to them. Um, because I just didn't want to hurt their feelings. I didn't want them to spend their life thinking that I was going to burn in hell or that I was lost when I was coming into my own and I've actually been happier than I ever have before. But I knew they wouldn't understand that. So when they read the article, my dad confronted me about it and we had a really good talk on the phone. And My mom wouldn't talk to me for a few months. She had just lost her mom and she was overwhelmed with feelings and so a few months later, she came on visited me to talk about my leaving the faith. I don't really like the expression loss of faith. I didn't lose it. I chose to leave it. And so we, we addressed that, but we didn't address the sexuality part. So I know like they've read that I'm bisexual. And my dad says he reads everything I publish. And I've been writing more about bisexuality. So I assume that means he's read this stuff, but he hasn't addressed it with me. And... I don't just I just don't think any of us know how to talk about it. And I they certainly, unless they listen to this, hi dad, um, <laughs> they don't know that I date. Um, and they don't know that Derek, my husband and I are polyamorous, but they do know that I'm well and I'm happy and I have good relationships and a good marriage. So they're happy for me. I think they're scared to hear about the rest because it's so off their radar. I mean, living in small town Iowa their whole lives. 
it just doesn't, like you just don't have a reference point. You don't you like I don't know that there's any openly queer or polyamorous people in my hometown. Like that's that's not a thing. It's like it was moving out here to Denver and seeing other people live this way openly that gave me the courage to be able to do it and to know that I could and it was okay. Right. Uh, for another point of connection between you and I, I grew up in small rural town in northern Missouri and I went okay. to undergrad in Iowa. So I do have some understanding generally of probably somewhat of a shared background with some of these things with you, understand where some of this is coming from. Yeah, just that environment of small town, like they just don't know what they don't know, you know, if they've never left. That's, you know, the small town is your whole world. You just don't even know what else is out there. And you did leave. You left Iowa. You are in Denver now. And I have a question on that because I found um, somewhere in your writings, somewhere you referenced that the beat poets and writers influenced mm. you to leave Iowa. And okay, so one, I'm curious if there was a specific work, like say Jack Kerouac's On the Road, or if we're talking about some of the other specific pieces, but that was something that meant something to me. I came into it um, my mid-20s. Obviously, it has influenced generations for you know 50 years or more um, since On the Road was published anyway. How did the Beats influence you to leave Iowa and move out to Denver? Which, by the way, was where Neil Cassidy was at some right? point. I think the Beats had a lot to do with me ending up in Denver as well. <laughs> um, I love this question. Um, I think the Beats nowadays in particular have a bad rap especially with feminists for good reason uh -huh. um and i i support those reasons but because of what they their work means to me they will always mean a lot to me these you know these particular men like um jack kerouac and neil cassidy and william burroughs and alan ginsburg i one of my best friends in high school my dear friend to this day andy um we got really close when my close friend who I went to my first purity retreat with, uh, she got pregnant in high school and she graduated early. And so I got closer to my friend Andy and, and he was just kind of your typical teenage slacker kid. Didn't pay attention much, but he was brilliant separately. Like he read a lot of more complicated literature than was assigned us in school, but he wouldn't read the actual assignments. And <laughs> he started telling me about the beats and he was writing and he was a musician and he was starting to travel on his own and telling me what else was out there. And he's like, you got to read this book. You have to read on the road. You have to, you got to read this book. Like he knew the gist of my situation and, and that I felt stuck, but was depressed about it. And I think he, he must've given me a copy of the book or I got it from the library and I fell in love. I just like the, the romantic writing. I think Jack Kerouac and I are, the same Enneagram type, <laughs> if you're familiar with the Enneagram. He's like just very romantic. Everything's romantic. The color of the sky, the feeling in my body, this person talking next to me. Like he just gave meaning to everything he noticed. And I'd never read a writer like that before. I loved the meaning. I'm like, I'm like, this is me. I love giving meaning to everything I noticed. And and the travel aspect too, and all this talk about Denver. And I had family in Colorado where my dad, my dad got saved here. So my, my aunt and uncle and a couple of cousins out here. So there's connection already. And so the next time I came out to visit my family, I was like, I got to find Larimer street that they talk about Larimer street and on the road. And <laughs> right. But I don't, yeah, like the work just inspired me to, to get out, to see the beauty that existed in the rest of the world. Cause I, I was in a space where I was very afraid of the world because everything could be potentially an influence from Satan to sway you away from God and ultimately towards death, which is hell. Death is the absence of God. And um, so I was just I was terrified of leaving my bubble, even though I wanted to more than anything. And, and I think their work in showing that people are beautiful outside of any concept of faith religion. You know, there, there was a lot of Eastern religion and Buddhism in their work. Yeah. Well, Gary Snyder, right? He spent time in Japan. Yeah. He was especially in, in, in engaged in Buddhism. And then Kerouac would end up writing poetry and all kinds, like they all would really dive into this and Ginsburg and the meditation. I, I feel like I was influenced by some of the same things that you're talking about mm. and the way that Kerouac would 
would feel. I think that's what led to the bot pros and all this stuff that just would flow out of them that a lot of people, at least in traditional literature, would just think this is nonsense. (laughs) Yeah. I remember asking my, I was a junior in high school. I remember asking my English teacher for a copy of Howl because I couldn't find it anywhere. Mm. And the internet wasn't as available. And, um, he, I think like everyone just kind of knew I was super religious. I was just really awkward and, and quiet. And he was like, well, I don't know if that's for you to read. Like imagine a teacher <laughs> keeping you, he was actually one of the best teachers I ever had, but I think he just knew my restrictions around my life and was a little concerned that maybe getting into trouble with my parents or something. But, um, he didn't, he kept it from me. He kept Howl from me. And no, I, I found a way I can't remember how I must have gone to a different library and found Howl and that blew me away. And I ended up writing some like midterm on it once I was in college. I studied the beats more in college. I was like, ha ha, screw you, <laughs> high school teacher. I got to it anyway. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to read that again. It's been a little while since I've read it for the however manyth time. I, I might have to read that when we, when we drop our conversation here. <laughs> Maybe I will too. I want to go to Suspect Press, all right? We've already mentioned it a couple of times. This has been a magazine, a quarterly uh, literature and art magazine that you were co-owner and editor-in-chief of, but you started out there a handful of years or so before um, you just wrapped it up with your final print issue this summer. You started out there, though, as volunteer and worked your way into that, and I think I, I have the strong impression from things that you've written out there in the world in suspect press among them, that it was an incredibly important experience, publication community in your life. You want to tell me about suspect press and, and, and then that this farewell this past summer Mm. in recent months to that period in your life. Yeah, I was teaching preschool. Um, when I started volunteering with suspect press, when, I worked as an assistant teacher for the first several years I lived in Denver and I'd been a early childhood librarian in Iowa before this. And part of that's just because young women in the church are basically raised to (laughs) rear children um, and work with children. There's nothing I really felt passionate about, but I was good at it. I enjoy working with kids, um, but I knew I eventually wanted out and I had been to a suspect press release party where I met several people who are my friends now to this day. And, and one of them was who became my business partner, Josiah Hesse. And he was at Mutant Information Cafe reading from his newly published or about to be published through Suspect Press book, Carnality Dancing on Red Lake. And he was reading about being an evangelical in Iowa. And I was like, I have to meet this person. I have to be involved in this. I, I was craving connection. I was still not sure where I stood in my faith. I think that was at the exact month I was probably starting to consider myself an atheist. And I was like, I I need to find my people. And I kept submitting and trying to contact them, but they were in a transitional phase for a while. And I think it was an entire year later when I actually finally met them and, and, and said, I'd like to volunteer. I had an English degree and they were kind of about to drop out um, with some changes in their staff and took me on willingly. And I I just loved the work. I, I felt like these people, I, I remember thinking the first time I hung out with Josiah and Dan, Dan Landis, that these are the beats, like these are the true beats. I've met the beats. Here they are today. These are today's Denver beats. And I'm like, I was just so enamored and so shy too like oh I'm not worthy (laughs) (laughs) um so I just quietly started volunteering and meeting new people and networking and that was really panic inducing for me like oh all these influences these bad influences potentially um but I just kept finding out that these were good people like people without faith were essentially good people like I've met far more kind loving, compassionate, welcoming people outside of the church than I ever did in. And Suspect Press was where I met a lot of these people that changed my whole perspective on this grungy punk DIY art scene. Like, oh, those are the the 
dirty people or the lost people because they have to rely on drinking and drugs and you know one night stands we're like no they like met them and like oh wait these are actually the the really kind people um who've been through shit like people who've been through shit are usually the kindest people and so the people drew me in as well as the work and my confidence grew as I started publishing my own fiction pieces in the magazine and being given more roles and so I eventually quit teaching because I loved this work so much more and I'd never just found anything I wanted to do with my general English degree. Dan Landis, who owned it at the time, who owned a few restaurants in Denver, he was going to part ways with the company and he encouraged me to step up and at the time Josiah was the editor-in-chief and he wanted to grow the book business so he wanted me to take over the magazine and I was happy to, but I risked my financial stability and went for it. I made it work. I made no money for the first couple of years doing it, but I made it work. And um, I don't know what to say. It, it became my baby. It became my my means of finding my closest friends and, and gaining a ton of self-confidence and growing as a writer and, and learning I could share my story. It, like, I remember like having my first letter from the editor in the magazine and being so embarrassed, I guess, or shy about my face being in the cover of a magazine all over the city. I didn't want to see people opening the magazine. I was like, what? No, I don't deserve to be in the cover. That's that's nothing. Like like the Christian messages still uh, are hanging on to me about the I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of that. So putting myself out there because I was in the position to actually was a huge way of helping me heal from those messages to like, oh, I'm not being vain. I'm not being worldly. I'm being inspirational. I'm showing other people that they can get to this point. And that's meant a lot to me is like publishing people for the first time. Like so many people, I had the opportunity to publish for their first publication. And that I love that. It was so exciting every time, like how much they appreciated it. I loved paying people for their work. Sussex Press always paid every contributor. And I you know, you have this starving artist mentality, like you're not a true artist unless you're eating candy bars for dinner. But (laughs) Subject Press was also um, this force of sharing with others that your work is valid. Even if your parents told you being an artist wasn't something valid, like your work is valid because you're bringing something to the world and that deserves to be compensated. And so we can never pay a lot, but we paid all the contributors and and then partnered with the, the art company Meow Wolf for their economic stance in part due to them wanting to pay artists a livable wage with benefits. It's like you can live from being an artist. We had a contract with Meow Wolf that fortunately sustained us for a couple of years to make it a full-time job for three of us. And that was an incredible opportunity that I'm very fortunate to have had. And um, that contract was going to be running out this month um, originally and so we were already kind of planning on a shift happening and it was just getting to be exhausting so we were kind of talking about going into hiatus to reassess and then with the pandemic we ended up losing our contract with Meow Wolf early as well as losing all of our advertisers for almost all for the spring issue we were going to put out we had like everything ready to go for the spring issue and then the pandemic and we lost our advertisers so the final issue we just put out in August was that spring issue. We just added a lot of farewell letters and a little bit more arts. And I, I'm really glad we went that way where we gave a lot of people the chance to say what Suspect Press has meant to them over the years because it has meant a lot to a lot of people even before I came onto it. And it was it was really nice to hear from those people who'd worked on it in the past or been contributors in the past. It's been around for seven years and I think it's going to be something that's remembered in Denver for a long time because of how many people were impacted by it and got to be involved with it. I mean, it's it still exists. We still have our books out in stores all over Denver and some other states and online. But Lonnie Allen, my colleague, intends to hopefully bring it back in another form on his own in a few months. Um, but he is taking a hiatus from the magazine now and we won't be putting out any more books. Okay. It sounds like it was... Uh, a tremendous experience for the period of time that it was that certain chapter. And now as we started off this conversation with, right, you're moving 
into a new space for yourself with screenwriting and filmmaking. So there are exciting things as you move on and go forward with this. I want to ask you, with full awareness that, of course, life is fluid, we're always learning, and at your age, which you referenced earlier, you're obviously still in the earlier, you know, earlier half, certainly, of that. But I'm going to ask you this question. Of what do you think you think you know? What have you figured out about <laughs> life at this point? With full awareness, it can change next week when you get new information from life experience. But are, are there things through all of these experiences that we've touched on where you're like, I, I think I'm getting a good, a good bead on what this is about? <laughs> I think I've learned not to fight the changes. Like I've learned that things change constantly. And for the first half of my life, things were very steady. It was the bubble of not meeting very many new people regularly, being in the same small town. And so it's still kind of a, knocks the wind out of me every time something changes in my life or I, a friend fades away or what have you or a job. But it really helps not to fight it and just pout about what you lost because it was so great and Everything great that's happened to me once it has gone away has only led to more good things that I could not have anticipated or had the room for if I hadn't let the other things go. And the, and the screenwriting is certainly one of them and the filmmaking. And I, I never dreamed of being a screenwriter, filmmaker, and now it's my dream. I didn't know that was going to be my dream. I thought my <laughs> dream was to be a writer. I don't know. Um, I thought maybe my dream was to do Suspect Press forever, but... I'm, I'm really glad for the space to try new things. That's something I've come to as well. People have long said that nothing is certain but death and taxes. Yeah. I think we've learned that taxes is optional if you have the right <laughs> lawyers. And uh, death, depending on your beliefs, maybe you're going to have another life after this one. The one thing that I know for sure that is certain in life is change. Mm -hmm. This brings us to the final question how I put this to all listeners in every episode is how do you live humanness and creativity in your life? You and I have talked uh, for an hour now about tremendous humanness and your creative connection within yourself and expression publicly already. So rather than ask the question that way, how do you live humanness and creativity in your life? I'd like us to like, well, like you to distill this down to what maybe you see as most meaningfully human and creative about you. To you, What do you see in yourself as just being, in a nutshell, this is who I am at the heart of my humanity and creativity? I'm going to start by saying I've been reading a lot of Pema Chodron lately, who is this spiritual teacher and a Buddhist nun, and I was just reading about impermanence and how that is, the guarantee is impermanence, and we have little deaths all the time and every day, and mm. so... Right, right now in this space, I'm, I'm in a very spiritual healing space of reliving, reworking through some old traumas that have come up again, and trying not to be as afraid of them. I think there's a big fear of darker, scary emotions. And so right now in my life, I think I'm living humanist by sitting with any emotion that comes up and not labeling it bad or wrong. Like maybe it's hatred, maybe it's anger, maybe it's insecurity or fear. Like these are on the same plane as joy and achievement and in love. And they can all be used to connect with other people. And my way of sharing that with other people is putting it into my art and that, that is how I heal. I think it's so crucial that we spend that time being willing to look within ourselves and also, you know, how can we be gentle, compassionate, loving with other people if we have not figured out how to do that with ourselves? Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Lastly, Amanda, I want, I want to say that you wrote in your farewell letter for Suspect Press something that is especially relevant to me. You said, telling our stories is what gives others the confidence to tell theirs. And when we share our stories, we grow in empathy, awareness, and understanding. 
we are so completely aligned in this and it's what humanity is all about at heart. And you've shared so much of yourself today. Um, so authentically and, and vulnerably. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm glad that you were able to connect with what I wrote. That that validates <laughs> that expression there. Um, but that is what I, I hope. And it's still it's still so tied in with vanity. I feel like that's a vain thing for me to request or say. Or, but are you know Maybe you feel this too as a hang up from religion, but it feels wrong to draw attention to yourself because the attention's supposed to go to God. But, you know, depending on what you, you view of God, maybe you can see God as being people. God is in everything and everyone. And if you share your story, I think that's a way of connecting to God, depending on, on how you look at it. And so thank you for the invitation to share my story and help me um, work even further on getting over the hang up of it being vain to talk about myself. And I hope that other people feel like, yeah, just from hearing this, that it's okay to own that you have a story even and to talk about it. Absolutely. I'm sure that someone listening right now is extremely grateful that you have shared your story. So thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. That was Amanda E.K., writer and filmmaker, in today's Humanity Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Amanda in the show notes published on our website at humanity.com. To keep the good going, follow Humanity on your podcast player or subscribe to the Humanity newsletter via the website. We're regularly adding conversations like this one, full of humanness and creativity. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here. 